And nobody was going there with that kind of mindset. You were going there to dance. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. Um, We are really excited today to be joined by Malcolm James, who has just published a book called Sonic Intimacy, The Study of Sound. Malcolm is a cultural studies academic, writes on race, youth, sound, culture and space. We're pretty excited on the show you might have guessed already because basically Malcolm has written a book about Tiso's life (laughs) essentially essentially it's been mad these sorts of books don't come along very often we were saying in our pre-chat like honestly like the way you write it is just so powerful and it's such a great exemplification of the type of scholarship we're really passionate about and that we feel like can bridge the gap between the academy and those beyond the academy it's real you're talking about people's lives you're talking about culture you're talking about politics and sound and we're going to talk more about that now during this episode boy (laughs) boy listen on a real all the things that just to echo all the things that Chantel said I think what Malcolm's book has done if you was there if you were someone who was there at that time, it will resonate with you. I recommend to go out and buy the book because if you're from that time period, it will resonate with you because I read it and I thought I was back in the rave. I thought, oh, I started sweating and everything. <laughs> Let's roll back a sec. Tell us, if you had to describe in two sentences, what is Sonic Intimacy about? Sonic Intimacy is that kind of feeling we all know. It's like that feeling in the dance where you just described Tiso. That feeling of that kind of rush, of that kind of energy, of the vibe or the buzz or the hype. That is something that's commonly held that lots of us who know music and love sound experience. Do you know what I mean? And it's not something that's been written about very much, but it's obviously because it's commonly held and commonly shared. It's deeply meaningful. And I'm just, the book is about how that has transformed, not in a linear way, but in a kind of up and down, lots of different strands way. And why those transformations matter. It's written about reggae and dub sound systems, jungle pirate radio, and grime YouTube music videos. And it's saying that there's something at stake in the intimacy, the changing forms of presence, the changing forms of intimate knowledge, the wisdoms, the changing forms of the kind of intimate way we see ourselves in the other, in in a big sense, like a oneness kind of sense. And it's saying these things matter, and it's saying that they matter on the grounds in particular that these are black diasporic sound cultures. So you could write the same in a kind of like revisionist white account like you sometimes see on the kind of hardcore literatures, and you can make the similar kinds of points. But obviously in black diasporic sounds, because of the relationship of racism um, to the visual and to the coded, Sound has different properties. We know that through W.E.B. Du Bois. And for the same reasons, we also often don't understand intimacies and proximities because we're too caught up with talking about things as being textual or labelling them or the signification. Do you know what I mean? 
And so we've missed some things. And in Black Diasporic Sound Cultures, that matters because within that, intertwined and contradictory with modernity are alternative modernities and forms of freedom that matter um, matter to black people and matter to everybody. Whoa. That's a big thing, you get me? It's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, that was my next question. I was going to say, why choose sound? Because, like, people will use the visual and textual to describe these situations and have done for years. By picking sound, you, especially on my reading, you pick up something of the essence, the idea of the feeling. So when you're writing, you're describing sound. And I thought that's a, a very unusual type of methodology. Like, how would, you, how would you describe sound? And I think that comes across in what you're trying to describe in those moments, in those spaces or in your car or, or even in your house or in the shower. You're describing that feeling. I love that you picked up on that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. That's really great because that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I'm not really asked people about that or spoken about it when i was listening to each of the sessions so on reggae and jungle and and grime i was writing it with the music on (laughs) not so much the emceeing kind of side of the music it's quite difficult to write when somebody's emceeing but so each of the sections in its kind of flow and shape and energetic kind of field if you like is meant to have the feeling of those moments too, as I tried to write it like that way. So that's really cool that you you read it like that too. I appreciate that. When you're talking or approaching about sound as a descriptive quality to, to kind of describe moments or reflect cultural moments, I think it does something a bit more precise. It's a kind of contradiction. It does something a bit more precise, but it's very ambiguous at the same time. It names that thing that no one can name. This is what I think is quite good about when you've kind of used the idea of a sonic intimacy. Like, that way of describing that kind of feeling that's happening at this particular time. I'm loving the conversation you guys are having already about the feeling, the intimacy, the sound, the moment, the genre. Can I just contextualise this for some of the listeners? What time period are we talking about in Sonic Intimacy, Malcolm? We're starting in the 70s. It mainly focuses on dub sound systems of the kind of 70s and early 80s. That's the kind of dub period. And so we're moving into a kind of, we've gone from a kind of Jim Callahan into a kind of Thatcherite government. And really it talks about the Thatcherite context, the policing the crisis context, if you like. And then as we move into the kind of jungle scene, we're moving out, if you imagine, of the kind of acid acid house scene into the hardcore scene into the jungle scene and that's all overlapping right obviously that's influenced by reggae and we're moving into the 1990s and we're really moving out the Thatcherite era and into this really kind of grim fag end um kind of conservative administration which is which is the the 90s until until 97 and really a lot of the best jungle is made in that moment (laughs) um then after that we're moving out of that period and into the 2000s. So we're moving into the kind of Blairite era. We have that little honeymoon of New Labour when it seemed like they were actually going to do something good and then they brought in the bulldozers, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so we're, we're, in, we're in that moment, that moment and the kind of rise up of kind of the, the end of UK Garage. I don't really talk about UK Garage. The, the rise up of grime and then the shifts into kind of mobile communications, mobile phones, YouTube, which is around kind of 2008. And probably the book takes you up to about 2012. So we haven't got that kind of era of kind of really grim Tory austerity from 2010. But I think that's kind of more kind of Tiso's 
what you're writing about in drill, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's kind of yeah. fits with that period. Yeah. So it's that kind of span. Thank you for giving that description, Malcolm. That's really, that is really helpful for the listeners. I'd say that where this conversation is going to move is definitely more in the direction of what was happening in terms of when you guys were raving. I love, by the way, the book says the beginning for the ravers and it's just so good. (laughs) Like it's so, so amazing. But one of the things I wanted to say in particular, when you were talking about, when you guys were just talking about sound and how you were able to describe sound and time together is when I read the book, I was thinking about my dad. Now my dad is 54. I was born in 1992 and he had a flat in Lower Clapton. The amount of time as a kid during the 90s that I spent sat in the back of his car with the music just vibrating. (laughs) And like I look back really fondly at that time now but playing the music that you talk about so carefully in the book and I think that's what's really interesting particularly for people of my generation that are just that little bit that are that little bit younger is we do have a memory of this we weren't in the raves but our parents were in the raves or our older brothers or our uncles and aunties were so that music was still that sound that fit like you feel it in your heart that sound like as a kid like thinking you're gonna like explode also thinking about late 90s into the noughties like some of the things that you were talking about in terms of new labor and music I was definitely becoming much more politicized and immersed even from a very young age and that was to do with my 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 dad in particular and my mum to an extent but um yeah I think that that so much to say obviously about the ravers and what was happening there but I just think one is just to bring in those people that is definitely for people it's the books for everyone. I think everyone can get something from it. But I would say there's another experience that I feel like you ca- you kind of almost accidentally have captured it within it as well that I could see in, my, in myself, basically. I'm, I'm glad about that. It's interesting to hear that about the, the cars as well, because that, I mean, I will come, I'll move on from the cars in a second, but that was the kind of way of bringing the sound system into your mobile environments, obviously, wasn't it? And you can get a proper, I mean, the sound systems, that was the kind of secondary transmission of the city anywhere where you were in the city, not just the city, even in market towns or new towns in Hertfordshire, you'd have kind of kids driving around and basically you could hear the radio stations coming out of people's windows of their cars, the rattling car exteriors. But um, yeah, no, I mean, I hope, like it's obviously like a, a lot of the book is, is, as I say, pitched from kind of 2008 to 2012. Um, and so a lot of it is really, and, and the, a lot of the crux of the argument folds around what's happening as these kind of mobile communications, what happens as kind of sound culture moves onto YouTube? Why does that matter? So that's, for most people, a kind of present and kind of experience, a reality that they would have grown up with, I think. For me personally, that period reflects like, my youth like so growing up the geographies of that were very localized around certain areas so if i was in west london or south london but not so much east london and and that's reflective of where the black communities are i always felt and i still felt today that 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 sound of those reggae sound systems it used to carry an explicit political tone to it or explicit social tone so it was actually speaking to something Mm. so much about the kind of about the reggae sound system is political. You've got the kind of, um, you know, lots of other people have written about this as well, like very <clears> eloquently, like, you know, it had its kind of political messaging. It had its kind of, it had its versioning in kind of a particular kind of civil rights, anti-racist struggle. 
that was kind of transatlantic and that was also British too. And in the British version, that was about empire as well and class struggle, you know. <laughs> um, and we hear that in obviously in in Linton's kind of version of the sound system in that way. But you also have the kind of Rastafari idiom, right? That this kind of coming through strongly. The kind of Garveyism as well is in there. So, you, so you have all that kind of political messaging, and you have that within a sound context that is has the ability to take you outside of time, outside of time, outside of place. So, in the context, extremely belligerently racist society at that time where leisure leisure facilities weren't open in central London, not many anyway, to black people. You have a space where people can congregate and escape or kind of imagine themselves away from the day-to-day realities of living in the city. And to do so through the kind of deconstructive rhythmatics of dub, which in some way induces a feeling that you're not in this like bam, 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 bam clock time of the capitalist city. It moves you out of somewhere else. And obviously the bass moving through your body, connecting you to other people, does a particular kind of thing. Paul Gilroy has a nice phrase in which kind of people, through those kind of means, people could imagine their places and connections to elsewhere in the diaspora, moving through these kind of journeys without disrupting their pleasures. So it's a pleasure space as well. And as you move into jungle, as as we know, like jungle doesn't doesn't have that kind of politicized kind of messaging anymore in its lyricism in fact there is emceeing on jungle but mostly jungle is instrumental and the emceeing on jungle not much of it gets beyond the kind of front of house announcer come on people in the place let's have it london town shout out to blah 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 all that kind of stuff right um there are people who kind of are particularly good but it but it wasn't much of that it wasn't so much about that political messaging. A lot of jungle is about popular cultural commentary, what's happening in the Premier League, what's happening with Michael Jordan, do you know what I mean? That, that, what Manchester United are doing, for example. Um, and so it's not so politicised in its commentary, but its sonics is a kind of politicised, a kind of wisdom on the city, the agonism of the city. You get the feeling of the kind of tension, of, of, of the kind of edginess, you know what I mean? And then that sonics kind of is... The bass is bursting underneath and you've got the rolling crescendo and crescendo and waiting for the break. And there's something in it that feels like it wants to explode and go elsewhere, you know. And that is political too, obviously. The sound of the 70s and 80s, it's also become like almost quite cliche. So when you watch anything like Small Axe or anything like that, they go through a, a kind of top hits of silly games, police and thieves. Anything of the 80s that, that shows like Brixton or the, or the riots, that will be the backing music on BBC One or BBC Two. If you look at it, that's what they play because it becomes symbolic of that time, of that diaspora. But anyway, mm. as an aside, as I moved from going from that part of my dad into like growing up as a teenager into jungle music, one of the mm. things I liked about the sonics of of hardcore or garage and all that was that it was non-conformist. I could do what I want. I didn't have to have rhythm, as people had to say. I could literally do what I want. And it's that idea that I wasn't shackled to any kind of routine or or it's the fact that I was saying this is something for us. This is not my parents' music. This is our music. And it's and it became a localised thing. So you speak about it from the heart. So this is music made in the ends by my people, my radio station. You're shouting out to your people. That difference, I think, the 70s and 80s, there's a kind of a diasporic link to home, well, home in inverted commas, but... This this sonics of the jungle, the sonics of London. It's the sonics of London, 
I think if you remember when um, It's a London thing came out, like that Garrett shit, It's a London thing. That was a big thing. I'll go to another manor. I'll go to Brighton and tell people I'm from London. It's a big thing. And people behave in a kind of different way because that's the sound. That was our sound. And I think that's captured in the books when you're moving from, like when you're moving from epochs, like from the 70s and 80s into the, into the 90s, you have this overlapping where the jungle sonics, you have the reggae sonics from the from the past teamed up with this new sound that represents us. And this sound is, it's harsh, it's fast, it's instant gratification. It's like the kind of neoliberal individualist thing. I want it now, 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 now. When I used to play it to my parents, I can see how disconcerted they were. Like, I think one of my friends said, how do you dance to girls? How do you dance with a girl to this music? I'm like, dance with a girl? Why would you do that? Like... <laughs> So thank you for that description. I think it was so good. But it, and it was making me think about parts of the book, which I think speak to other conversations that we've had on this show. So I'm thinking about Julia Toppin, who came on to talk about jungle and black women and her own career and work in the music industry. I'm thinking about Joy White, who's talked about Terraformed. I'm thinking about Shireen Donnelly Scott, who's talked about Brexit and grime. I just feel like so much of this stuff all kind of merges into what you're talking about t like it was ours this was our scene we've evolved it we've adapted it we've we're responding to the politics of the time we're responding to thatcherism we're responding we're responding to john major we're responding to tony blair we're responding to later david cameron theresa may through these sounds how this conversation and the book just fits so well into some really brilliant scholarship that's being done at the moment that is really capturing such an important time. Michael captures it in his book when he talks about the idea of the lo-fi. Like, a lot of what we do, a lot of what we did, a lot of our sound was in contrast to what we'd hear in America. Like, all the American stuff that we had was well-produced. It was so polished. The English version was like a pelt imitation. For the first time, when we made these sounds, it, it sounded authentic. It sounded like us. You didn't have to put a fake accent on. So you could rap in your accent. So people emceed in their own accent, use your own slang. It was like a reformation, right? You could speak in your own vernacular and people like that. Do you know what I mean? People mm. like, they are the ones and twos. All their things there because it makes you think, yeah, boom, that's me. That's a bit of me. Guys, Tiso is literally in preach mode. He's put his hood <laughs> up. Whoa! <laughs> The arms are going, like, we are in the zone right now. Yeah, yeah. bro. It sounded like us. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it, it did. It, it, I was thinking, as you were saying, that that kind of vernacular thing, that's what I was thinking about. Because you start to see that, obviously, at the end of the kind of, like, more fast chat kind of smiley culture, don't you? That kind of mm-hmm. copy translation is often kind of talked about as a important moment of the kind of, the mixture of Caribbean vernacular and kind of London vernacular or Cockney vernacular, as he talks about. Once you've got into jungle, that is common sense. And so you've got people kind of emceeing and they'll just slip between kind of London and Jamaican kind of vernaculars, just like that. And that's that's just what you're used to hearing on the radio waves all the time. There's an openness in jungle that's partly conditioned by its sonics. So Nobody denies, I've never heard anybody deny that Jungle isn't kind of a black diasporic music, right? Also, at the same time, you couldn't see who was making the tracks on pirate radio, right? So it became not a kind of visual assessment of someone's kind of racialized connection to the sound, but an assessment of how wicked the bass line was, really, mm. how badly it dropped. Do you know what I mean? And so there was a kind of opening up, and I think some of those movements also in the kind of vernacular 
patterning of the London sound of it sounding like us were facilitated by the fact that it was sonic in the way that a kind of more visual culture, let's say like a grime YouTube um, culture, finds it more difficult to navigate because it's always being pulled back into those really strong kind of racialized structures and identifications. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so you hear, and, and if you read the kind of biographies of the people in the scene at the time, or you speak to people who are in the scene at the time, or you kind of remember it, everybody's saying that, everybody's saying, yeah, it was just about, it was just about who was dropping the wickedest bass lines. Do you know what I mean? I was probably in like fifth year, boom, going to my first raves. And some of my white mates would say like, listen, we're not going to a jungle rave. That's, that's a black thing. It was codified not by the people who were producing it, but by the people mm. who were going to these things. In those spaces, people were redefining at that time what it meant to be black in inverted commas, white in inverted commas, by how they dress and how they carry on because there was a level of intermixing that you didn't really see in the playground because in my school, quite segregated. Once those white boys did come, they behaved in yeah. a different way. And then they then they started recoding the music as just music, not a black for music just just like vice versa the black boys would, would code hardcore happy house or even house music as a white form of music which would change once the sounds got closer and closer day to day on a street level that's how it that's how it was at the start like i would speak to certain groups of people uh groups of black boys groups of white boys and they would take sides but once yeah. they got into that zone and got into that place it changed and it, it shows that in space people can reinvent themselves in yeah. conjunction with the sonics I think that's a really important thing to say, and that's really helpful, actually, to kind of add to what I was saying before, because it's not the kind of that there was this kind of happy, clappy, you know, suddenly racism didn't exist, everybody was in the rave together thing. Of course, it was a, um, as now, a very racist society. And people, when they went into a rave, that didn't evaporate. And obviously, as soon as you left the rave, you were back into the society that was racialized policing and the rest of it, right? So who got drugs, who's going to get stopped walking out with pills or whatever it was, the, the criminalization is still racialized. But it, it it provided a space in which people were prepared to to move across kind of certain boundaries where there was an opening up and, the, and, and, the, and there was a commonality that people could, could kind of say, oh, there's something about us that I can recognise in you, and that is the fact that you like jungle and you're saying you're from London town. Do you know what I mean? So, mm. do you know what I mean? So, so it didn't evaporate in the dance. The dance was still racially coded as well, but at the same time, it, it was lifted. There was an there was an ability for people to be comfortable in certain ways that they'd previously been more uncomfortable in, I suppose, or something like that. It would just be good to talk a little bit about the far right at the time, what they were doing, the gains they were making in particular. Yeah. Talk about the 90s now. Yeah. So Derek Beacon and um, and Isle of Dogs and stuff like that. Derek Beacon's, I think, a kind of, I can't remember when National Front or BNP ends, but he's a far right politician who stands in the Isle of Dogs. At the time, I think it's when kind of Centre Force, the big kind of hardcore pirate is still transmitting from those areas and probably about the time that Cool FM is just starting to come up and will become the biggest kind of pirate radio station. And Centrepoint is a kind of, um, had that kind of hardcore whiter image, I don't know, would you say Tiso? And the Isle of Dogs in association with that. And Cool FM is a black pirate radio station and more militantly than than most. Um, and so you have kind of all that kind of going on at the same time. What inspired me to get into start writing about the far right was the 1993 Millwall election. So I grew up in it. Like Malcolm, what you said was 100% white. 
Centre Force was a seen as Centre Force, yeah, a white sound. Just to be clear for the listeners, so Centre Force was a pirate radio station. Like how people remember it now, they remember it as just a pirate radio station. But in 1993, it was seen as a white space, and it was more hardcore. Then Cool FM came, and even how Cool FM's uh, kind of the catchphrase, it's cool with a K. It was a definitive black thing. At that time, you could kind of feel the tension. So what I said to you at the start, Malcolm, about these, that that black sound, that jogging through that black sound being located in certain areas, like that, all that kind of sound system didn't translate well to East London. This was a predominantly white area. Being a black kid growing up here, I was listening to hardcore and I even kind of racialized myself as white in my head because mm. These are the sounds and the spaces, and that's how I was navigating these worlds. My comportment, my style of dress, how I related to the music, how I related to other black people. It was all mm. shaped by these sonics that are going on. Mm. Only looking back, when you're talking about it now, did I kind of, you kind of realise it. Because you don't see these sonics as being almost instructive in what you're doing. Because you think TV, you think the visuals are what's coding you. But I, most of my time, it's outside. So you're spending time in these places, in people's cars, going to raves. And these sonics, they're part of these discussions and views. It's kind of a heady blend. What you're saying is 100% at that time, Centre Force was a particularly a white thing. Well, that's, that's how it tended to be viewed. And as it kind of moved, I guess when I went, to, went over South London, and then bits there, Cool FM, yeah, definitely black. And so then, I mean, I think you get to the, so, 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 you, yeah, so you've got kind of, you've got at the same time, so a lot of kind of this discussion is about the kind of, obviously about the kind of contradictions in society, the kind of dominant and the alternative sonic registers. So at the same time as you've got Derek Beacon in Millwall, right, in in, in the Isle of Dogs, right, and the kind of far right there, you've got the far right in Newham as well, right, mm. around kind of Canning Town and that kind of part, right? And you've got at the same time a kind of alternative to that going on. You've also got kind of... You've also got the kind of Tory version of Grant. So you've got the kind of tail end powerlism. You've got the kind of Tebbit Island kind of nation kind of thing, the cricket test, all this kind of mm-hmm. rubbish. Do you know what I mean? And you've got the kind of geographies of London that are kind of opening up to each other and starting to talk in a different kind of way through a black diasporic sound that becomes the sound of a multi ethnic city. And as you drive through London, what Tiso's kind of saying is as kind of um, centre force wanes and cool rises up, you've got Rush FM coming on, you've got Defection FM coming on, you've got all these stations, and all you need to do then is scan your dial, and in between BBC whatever and BBC what else, you've got like 10 or 15 pirate stations that are giving you a kind of different feel, and they're all and they're all telling you, they're shouting out to all their, anybody within their 25 metre radius, it's going out as far as kind of hardcore, you know, previously kind of associated with hardcore whiteness, like Romford, for example, mm-hmm. and it's reaching out, going down to Tower Hamlets, it's going up all the way to Hartford, it's going out to Bromley in Kent, and you've got this kind of soundscape happening, and you can hear all these people through the shout-outs being registered back into you. And it completely changes how you understand the space you live in, basically. Until I read your book, I never associated that with an overtly kind of political project, the idea of community, the idea of bringing all these different peoples together and... Even though you know when you're going to go to rave, you, you like it because everyone's there and you're still being hyper-local, but also at the same time being very multi-racial, just trying to be mi- as mixed as you can. So it's mm. you, you don't realise it, but in hindsight, when I look back, when I read your book, I feel, okay, yeah, it is that kind of local thing and it sits in relation to 
the mainstream. So to get your fix of the hardcore, to get your fix of the underground, you're looking for what's in between. And that kind of ties into the idea of that, the, the idea of new ethnicities and all this kind of, it's the in-betweenness that we were always looking at because it reflected where we were because we weren't our parents, but we weren't from here. But again, that's me looking back. At the time, I was just dancing. When Tiso was was reading the book and I was getting his sort of live narrations of it, which made me really happy, obviously. Um, and when I started reading the book as well, it made me really emotional. Um, the reason why it made me really emotional is because it made me think about my dad raving, but actually that being a place of safety for him. Like he had come back to the UK in the 80s, was involved in like the riots, apartheid um, campaign and all that stuff and just the fact that there there was alongside of the political resistances that black people were organizing around were these spaces of yeah happiness joy raving and it remind and then I also had an image of my dad's flat when I was a, a kid as well and thinking about the big Nelson Mandela book on his coffee table the massive woofer in the lounge like taking up all the space and then just like having the flat door being open just being able to hear all the music coming in the flat all the time I think it is due to the your craft and how you've written it Malcolm but it was just it just felt so personal and intimate basically reading it and so political as well yeah that's interesting what raves did your dad go to I mean, in terms of genre of music. Jungle, and then he's going to, eventually he's going to house. I think a lot of, I, do you know what? I, I, I feel I feel like there's a chance that there were oh, there were definitely like overlaps with what you guys are doing as well, which is quite exciting. Mm. Um, but I think this comes back to actually a really important point about these intergenerational conversations and the lack of, I have like basic details of it and memories but it's really hard to get him to talk about even that time, even the 90s, which weren't, wasn't even that long ago. Do you know what I mean? I find it personally hard to get some older black people to talk about any time in the past sort of like 50 years in the Britain. Mm. Another way of thinking about the kind of intergenerational thing, I think, is when you, you know, if you, you know, watch the interviews or read the kind of books that kind of people in the kind of first wave of grime wrote, you know, I think you have No Lay and DJ Target, DWE, people like this, and they're they're growing up with Jungle. You know, so that they the, what really gets them in music into music is Jungle. Being young kids trying to kind of get into the rave, not able to go, not sure if they're going to be able to get in because they look too young. You know, the one who looks younger than the rest gets sent home and has to wait at home till the rest come back. They're writing Jungle lines. So uh, No Lay starts off in her bedroom writing poetry and writing kind of writing jungle lyrics. And so you see kind of in that kind of intergenerational shift, because we're th- almost kind of thinking musically intergenerationally now, aren't we? We're thinking jungle yeah. to grime. But actually, obviously, it doesn't quite work like that because there's all this middle ground and people are kind of moving through the one to the other. And it's actually a kind of fairly seamless development in, in practice when you think about it through those biographies. That kind of shift, what I think was quite instrumental is was the change in technologies. There's only a few people in your mates could afford decks. I think out of all my mates, one of them got really, really good. And it was an art form. But now MCing, MCing now, that was a different thing. And it made people think, oh, I could do this. And MC in that thing was truly what, what an MC was, a master of ceremonies. You mm. can get into clubs free. You get you get girls, you get, you get fame, you get pop. And people like to listen. And then it became the wordplay. And then I remember... 
the first kind of garage club I went to, and it was a, a guy called, he wasn't very well known at the time, MC Creed, DT, and all them people, just before they started. And you'd hear these guys talk, and they'll be part, unlike later performances, they would be part of the crowd. So they would walk through the crowd, they'll talk to you. So they're almost like a member of the public, but also doing this thing. It became like, if you could do this, anyone can MC. And then it became the thing that you hear people in school MC and MC and MC and MC. And and it, and it, like I said, it was different from rapping. Rapping was something that Americans did. But mm. we MC, which, which if you look, if you look at the kind of genealogy of it, it was cl- very close to toasting, like Smiley yeah. Culture and all those people there. So it has a genealogy, that, it kind of links to the past. So those Sonics that I, I didn't used to think that were there, that were always had that kind of cultural link to that past. Mm. And it, but it transforms and that's a good other good like that's kind of again an intergenerational shift we're talking about there if you if you like over that same period so that the you have the kind of you know obviously you've got the DJ or the person who's toasting and on the reggae sound system in in jungle that gets mixed with that kind of hardcore MCing the more shout out thing mm. but you have um people who do kind of toast on jungle tracks and talk mm. about it in that kind of language or talk about it I think um. Or you know, some people talk about it still in that era as um, as 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 DJing, but use DJing in the kind of old in, in the reggae sense of the term to mean MCing, and then mm. and then you have that shift going into kind of UK garage and grime, where the MC who'd always been kind of, I felt I think felt a little bit inferior, had an inferiority complex in Jungle because it was always the producers and the DJs that were getting all the kind of credit. Suddenly you find Logan Sama at the back of the stage where nobody's mm-hmm. looking at him and you've got all the MCs at the front and not just one, but five or six, you know what I mean? That kind of fits with the change in kind of sounds and what the sounds people want. The human voice, the delivery, the way that can convey the kind of emotional and energetic kind of field of the city at that moment. The, the, the fact that you're, like you're saying, Tiso, you don't have to have the money to be able to buy the kind of CD mixes and the crossfader and all, and all the records and everything like that. You just have to be able to get hold of a microphone and then that, that, is, your, that, that is your route. And that fits with the feeling of the city at the time. So you have that kind of shift as well. That, I think that's really interesting, the rise of MCing culture, you know, from a kind of primarily instrumental music base. By the time we get to this point in our chronology and the MC becomes the front, if you've been in Jungle and, and House and Garage for a while, I'm of that generation where we push back against that. We feel that voice disrupts the sonics, the, the music, the instrumentals too much, and it places egos at the front. So at this time, I'm seeing more violence, more violence, more fights, and it's becoming a different type of scene. You have a group of people who become refugees from that scene to seek other more soulful sounds that try to replicate what's gone before with, with all the instrumentals, but with a more kind of mellow sound to reflect our maturity. So this is where we start going to house and soulful house. There is a marked shift in my own family. That's kind of borne out by the fact that, I guess I represent that kind of jungle, shifted to jungle to house, but my cousins, they're part of, he's part of Roll Deep and all that kind of stuff. So he's part of that sound with Wiley and all the bow boy, boy boys that started that grand music. So from my perspective, when they were doing that, I just thought, what, these people are lost. I thought they were lost. Mm. I didn't think it was going to be a big thing. I thought it was nothing. Mm. But they were part of that scene that's trying to just transform the scene. But the people who were in it, they were saying, "There's some. we've lost something here. We've lost that kind of the mm. harmonies. Yeah, no, it's good though. Because we're, we, we're talking about three music um, genres and scenes primarily, but obviously, as you rightly say, you've got houses, house going on at the same time. You've got techno going on at the same time. There's, mm. you know, 
souls never gone away etc etc there's all these things that are going on together and they have their different mm-hmm. movements and things yeah needs to be mapped out in that bigger way as well this has been such a brilliant conversation like it's actually do you know what I was feeling I was pretty pretty sad this morning and this has cheered me right up and also because we've been in lockdown so much like I just miss going out like I miss <laughs> and it's making me miss going out all i was doing is yeah. like, listening to certain types of yeah. music so i was listening to um i think frankie knuckles tears cc rogers someday playing those songs back and then playing some a bit of jungle a bit of burial leviticus and all them tunes there it, it that kind of nostalgia it's the idea of misremembering those so i have nostalgia but am i truly remembering how it was because i can remember some horrendous times if i thought back a set i think it's been a bit crazy and also how these sonics have shaped performance in people that sometimes it's quite detrimental to them. Mm. So, like, again, I'll talk about my own experience. I, those sonics shaped the performance that led you to a kind of more street life. And arguably, without those sonics, I'd have a different view on things, but it led you down to a particular type, led me to be a particular type of person to perform in a certain type of way. Is that possibly you misremember? Because that's the same argument that you see people in the, the MP say in Parliament say about drill that you are resistant to, that you'll say, that's not but, what's happening here. There's another such, you know what I mean? So like, is that, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting black skins, white masks on you now, but like, is that you like reinscribing something about no, the culture no, I, no, that, I, I think well, i think there's a tension i think there's a tension in both of them right so just as much as yeah. you're resisting against it you, you're also being shaped by it right so there's a an easy tension in it because i, I like I, I spoke I, like we, when we spoke to my mate anthony chantel and we both said like by the time when by the time we go to secondary school we're not really aware of what we're doing or struggles or being of blackness or whatever it will be but once we start listening to certain type of music, we start reflecting certain parts of it that we that we that we weren't really aware of. So, but you're always yeah. pushing it back. You're always pushing it back. It's not an easy tension. It's not one or the other. But at certain times, at certain times, you lean into something more than the other. So, at certain times, I've leaned into a particular, like especially as I got older, I've leaned into a particular image because, boom, that's because I, I feel that's who I am very clearly. But mm. obviously, and that's linked to me, and you're linking that to the Sonics, yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously because the idea of drift that, that Mance kind of put out, you kind of flow back and forward, man. So it's never it's never a straight path. Like everything that we do, every, there's always an influence, right? And like I said, black black sonics are always constrained by the white gaze. So there, there is that going on as well. So you're you're kind of fighting between these things all the time. You're kind of flitting and flowing. And you're, it's only as I've come out of it now, and that's kind of, I guess, talks to my own projects, speaking to people who have gone through that post-industrial phase, who were born in the late 70s, grew up and came out of it, and you're in your 40s now, in this, you've gone through it all. And how do you feel on reflection of that whole process? No, oh, that's really interesting. No, no, I, yeah. I mean, that's really interesting to hear you reflect on that. I mean, I, I've often thought that in, in the rave, there was a possibility for getting kind of off your face in whatever way, if you were white, that you didn't have, <clears throat> if you were a person of colour, because of the way you're kind of policed by society. Um, you had a kind of, you, you, you know, in the same way that there's kind of, um, there's a invulnerability to whiteness that people of colour don't experience. And I think in the rave kind of getting trashed um, 
if if you're a person of colour, you had sometimes had to hold your shit a bit more together. You couldn't completely let go. I don't know if that's true, T. So if you'd say that, no, but um, listen, that would that would be kind of my reflection. Yeah, no, Mark, I would say that holds true. Like, I think I think the best way to kind of put it is almost in a kind of mainstream analogy. It's like when you see young white guys be at, at a pub, they could behave in a certain way that young black guys don't when they get drunk. And that's and, and part of it, that's how we police each other because there's an idea of coolness that I need to maintain. And coolness entails ideas of control, ideas of being a bad man. So all those tropes that Bell Hook speaks about, that coolness as a form of as a form of defense comes in. But there's also that there's also that that policing of oneself and each other is to do with the criminalization of black life. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's important to say as well, like there is a mm-hmm. reason why yeah, there are those differences um, which come yeah. from the way the state, yeah, the state as well as those things that you're talking about, T, so 100%. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. Like, this has been such a brilliant conversation. Thank you. Patrons, we've got another episode for you now over on the Patreon. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next week for another episode. Thank you again, Malcolm. Okay, thank you for being back. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 